Chapter 6, Part 1 of The Greater Life and Work of Christ. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susan Lamar. The Greater Life and Work of Christ by Alexander Patterson. Chapter 6, Part 1. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Christ in the day of the lord all scriptures tell of a coming day it is the theme alike of old testament prophets and new testament apostles it is the summoning up of all history and the focal point of all prophecy it is described by the successive writers in terms of cumulative description each as though he received the picture made by his predecessor adds to it and hands it down to his successor the day grows from mere mention to outline and from that to full detail and ends in a panorama of figures and events which move along the narrative and produce upon the reader almost the effect of the original revelation every event of scripture seems to be connected directly or indirectly to the day of the lord the flood is a type of its coming and the destruction of sodom is declared to be a foretaste of it the plagues of egypt are repeated in the plagues of that day and the deliverance song of israel is the song of larger israel at a greater sea the victories of israel at megiddo are types of still greater victories of the church at the end indeed the whole of israel's history is woven into it the defeats of israel's enemies and the judgments upon them are used as materials to construct the picture of the last great judgments upon the enemies of christ so also the glories of israel are found within the framework of the story their capital city the ritual of worship the eldership the tabernacle and the temple are part of the scene not only israel but all nations furnish their share of the view and when it is analyzed it is found to be the converging point of the world's histories all the prophecies seem to await their final fulfillment at that time the first promise the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head it is a prediction of that day the message of the first prophet enoch has this for its theme so through all the old testament prophecies whatever their other messages all find space for some reference to the day of the lord jesus himself gave full details of it and all his apostles who have left us his writings and all other writers of the new testament gave space to this great theme the bible ends in a book wholly devoted to it it is a mingled scene of glory and terror all nature's beauties are exhausted to describe its glories and its awful phenomena clouds storms earthquakes darkness pillars of smoke fire are gathered into the picture all that human life and history can furnish voices trumpets thrones great assizes vast armies battles are called for to bring to the imagination a picture of surpassing grandeur the great characteristic of the day of the lord is that it is an inburst upon earth of the supernatural the other world breaks in on this angels are seen 
great signs unaccountable to man appear. Voices are heard from the sky. Its supernatural character must ever be kept distinctly in mind. The supernatural will be as common as the natural. It will be constantly in some form before the world. It is not an unknown thing that this should be so. The people of Israel had such displays. The ages of law, prophets, and the gospel were introduced by supernatural outbursts, and so will be this greater age. The coming of such a time has been a tradition or belief of all peoples and ages. The view of the peoples of earth has been that there would come a supernatural being from the skies and call the earth to judgment and then destroy it by fire. This was the belief of Greek philosophers, particularly the Stoics. The Sibylline oracles are full of it and relate substantially the scriptural account as they no doubt received it. It was taught by Zoroaster to his followers. The Hindus and Egyptians had also such a belief. The fable of the phoenix had reference to this. It was found among the Aztecs, who expected a coming one who would put all things right. It is still almost universally looked for. Every nation has its own peculiar ideas of its nature and coming. It is spoken of as the end of the world, the day of judgment, and properly so although not in the narrow sense in which these terms are used. The apostles presented a double view of the day of the Lord. They preached it as affecting the church and the world. To each, they presented it as the one great motive. To the church, they held it up as the great incentive to the cultivation of all graces and the reward for all services and the compensation for all sacrifices. They regarded it as something extremely desirable and urged the saints to look for and hasten unto the coming of the day of God. They kept it before the minds of the churches constantly. Every epistle is full of it. There is no subject which is more purifying and elevating than this. The study of the world above and events to come is set before us in the scriptures as the stimulant to holy frames of mind and earnest life. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are upon the earth. Augustine says the love of things temporal can only be overcome by a certain pleasurableness in things eternal. It is the exaltation of these glories of the future which is needed in this materialistic age. The presentation of these realities will prove the corrective for the worldliness of the age of sensuousness in which we live. The church must be made to see the greatness of the future life and world as the apostles and the prophets saw it. The future now has little attractive power. This age of comfort and conveniences is characterized by unbelief in or undesire for the things of hereafter. We are so engaged in securing for ourselves and others a heaven here by means of our improvements 
of material and intellectual and social kind that we are indifferent to any future heaven the bright pictures of the word are neglected in our day as never before only at funerals are they alluded to and at other times are listened to with heavy hearts as something for which we must forego the present a great loss has come to the church from this neglect of this great incentive the result is seen in so minimizing the eternal rewards and unduly exalting the temporal benefits of religion that the gain of salvation hereafter is in some a thing almost forgotten or even despised there is little left of hereafter but a dim idea of a mysterious state which is only accepted as a last resort and as an alternative from a worse fate this neglect of the things of the hereafter amounts almost to a heresy or a great apostasy to the world the apostle preached the day of the lord and all its terrors the apostles did not preach hell specifically the word does not occur in the acts or epistles except incidentally they dwell upon the coming of christ the resurrection the judgment the wrath of god and the destruction of the world by fire as warnings and incentives to repentance and faith in christ the narrowing of all this to the special place or fact called hell is one cause of the misunderstanding of the nature and justice of the punishment of sin it will be objected that this is the christ of power and not of grace it it must not be forgotten that christ nowhere declares himself as confining his work to the operations of grace this is the great element in his acting in our age but the great feature of christ acting in the day of the lord is power and justice wrath is as real and as holy as love when scripture says god is love it does not say he is nothing else there is a sense in which love is all-inclusive but such love is not the sentimental thing generally understood by the word today our god is a consuming fire is also written by inspiration of the holy spirit this whole subject eschatology the science of last things is the most neglected department of bible study today the general view is shut up to dying and going to heaven after that the general judgment few venture beyond that bare outline in fact the whole subject is in the minds of many in a state of utter confusion works on eschatology of a thorough and systematic kind are few many do not know what to believe upon the subject and therefore lose the comfort and the power to comfort others by it yet this is one of the most voluminously treated subjects in the scripture in the new testament one verse in twenty deals with it and the events are described with great minuteness it is a difficult subject when approached with preconceived opinions or systems to be affected by it but if studied in a simple manner with a mind willing to receive what scripture teaches regardless of the consequences to one's favorite views or reputation light 
will come. That it is difficult is reason for more study and not less. It is true there is a great difference of opinion upon this subject, but so is on all other subjects. And this is no good reason for neglecting this or any subject, but rather the more reason why it should be considered and the truth found. Under the persevering study of many diligent students, the whole is assuming form, and the state of the light upon it is far greater now than ever before. In this respect, the prediction of Daniel is being fulfilled. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. The running to and fro is investigation of the scriptures by study, as well as the general travel and enlightenment. One reason of the failure to understand the predictions of scripture has been the system of interpretation in vogue, which is known as spiritualizing or, more correctly described, the interpreting of scripture in a figurative manner. Bishop Ryle writes, I believe that the literal sense of the Old Testament prophecies has been far too much neglected by the churches and is far too much neglected in the present day and that under the mistaken system of spiritualizing and accommodating Bible language, Christians have too often missed its meaning. Bishop Jeremy Taylor wrote, in all the interpretations of Scripture, the literal sense is to be preserved and chosen, unless there is evident cause to the contrary. Tyndale said, The greatest cause of this captivity and decay of faith and this blindness wherein we are now sprang first from allegories. For Oregon and the doctors of his time drew all scripture into allegories insomuch that twenty doctors expounded one text twenty different ways. Sir Isaac Newton wrote, About the time of the end, in all probability, a body of men will be raised up who will turn their attention to the prophecies and insist upon the literal interpretation in the midst of much clamor and opposition. This is the very issue between the evangelical and unevangelical denominations today. We affirm and they deny the literal statements as to the divinity of Christ, his miracles, his resurrection, and ascent and descent of the Holy Spirit. To allow spiritualizing on these as might be claimed with as much reason would be to surrender all we hold dear. Certain scriptures have been used to support the so-called spiritualizing system. One of these is the letter killeth but the Spirit giveth life. Examinations of the context of this verse will show that Paul is not dealing with systems of interpretation here. He is contrasting the law and the gospel, and by the letter refers to the law, and by the Spirit to the gospel and its power. He is showing the superiority of the work of the gospel to that of the law. He shows what he elsewhere plainly teaches, that the law kills while the gospel gives life, because through it the Spirit works. 
The passage is as follows. Our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven on stones, came with glory, so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly upon the face of Moses for the glory of his face, which glory was passing away, how shall not rather the ministration of the Spirit be with glory? Here the letter is the same as that written and engraven on stones, which was the law. The new covenant is the gospel. It is the former letter or law which kills, and the gospel or new covenant which gives life. The same antithesis is seen in the use of these terms by Polygan in another place. But now we have been discharged from the law, having died to that wherein we were holden so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Here he uses letter as referring to the law. Another text relied upon to support the system is the saying of Christ. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I have spoken unto you are spirit and are life. The antithesis here is between the flesh and the spirit, and not words and spirit. There is no reference to interpretations of any kind. In fact, a meaning the very opposite from the view antagonized could be drawn from this scripture, for it says plainly that the words are spirit and life. Predictive scripture has also come to be neglected by reason of disgust at the extravagances of some who have given study to it. This reason would, if applied, also shut us out of all Bible study. For every truth has been carried to an extravagant extremes by some, nor are we to be moved by the fear of consequences. God who gave the scripture, takes all the consequences, and so may we. The first question for an honest seeker to ask is, what is truth? And follow the quest until he finds it. Undoubtedly, the attempt will, as others, show many points for criticism. The expositor of predictive prophecy subjects himself more than any other to such criticism. It is a most mysterious sphere in which we are feeling our way as with a light in a dark place, as Peter tells us. There are many conflicting views before the student. There is needed in both expounder and reader much patience. We are all eager to know and all intensely and personally interested in the events of this great future. Only sound exegesis and the illumination of the Holy Spirit can give us this light. In this spirit, feeling it is a vast and mysterious and awful subject, far beyond any of us as yet. 
The author would venture to add the results of many years of study of the scriptures and examination of many authorities upon this subject to the sum of knowledge obtained. The great prophet of the coming age was John. He was the nearest to Jesus of the apostolic band and probably the youngest. He was mightiest in the greatest of all graces. John was able to climb to that point which Paul declares was the summit of Christian experience. The greatest of these is love. He apprehended the pure gospel as seen in the character of the evangel written by him. Christ in John's gospel is for the world. The view of Christ in the apocalypse is also for the world. The revelation is unique among the books of the Bible. It is as different from the rest of the New Testament as the new is from the old. Lang says, As the Bible stands alone among the books of the world, so does the Apocalypse among the books of the Bible. It is like a third testament. It has upon the one who reads it earnestly some of the effect of the first giving of it, and this apart from the understanding of it. The book is supernatural and produces a supernatural effect. There is no book so verified as the revelation. It is the direct communication of Jesus Christ himself. The only words dictated by him to a scribe and ordered to be committed to writing. The Apocalypse opens with this promise. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written therein for the time is at hand. Christ himself closes with these words his last message i testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book if any man shall add unto them god shall add unto him the plagues which are written in this book and if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy god shall take away his part from the tree of life and out of the holy city which are written in this book. This is a warning against fanaticism on one hand and faithlessness on the other. To add unto them is to give them impious and extravagant interpretations. Setting times and seasons for the end of the world and other events connected with it or declaring utter wrath unmixed with mercy as the doom of all in this time. Founding sects and parties upon it, and claiming to be the parties therein meant, all such are adding to the things written therein, and will meet the certain fate of having added to them. The plagues which are written in this book, on the other hand, taken away from the words of this prophecy, also meets its penalty. It is taken away to disparage the study of the book, or to despise this class of subjects in the scripture, all of which are by inspiration to neglect such a book after such solemn promises and warnings is surely exposing oneself to the threat therein contained to make these things in the book mean less than they are intended is also to bring oneself within the warning such are all systems of interpretation which lighten the solemn warnings therein and make them mean anything or nothing according to notions or interest. The use of the various names of Christ in the Apocalypse is significant. 
The personal official title, Jesus Christ, only occurs in the introduction by John. It seems only to serve the purpose of identification of the Christ of the day of the Lord with the historical Jesus and the Christ of the epistles. The name Jesus occurs more often. It is found in the opening and closing paragraphs and in the body of the prophecy. It is always used in connection with the testimony, patience, or martyrdom of the saints, or the faith and testimony of Jesus. It is then the title of the time of trial. Lord Jesus is used by John alone in his closing prayer and benediction. It is the title as noted of the present age. The name Christ occurs only in connection with the triumph of the millennial kingdom. This then is the title for the time of victory and points forward to it. Christians are then by their very name professors of the coming kingdom of Christ, the Christ, and the Pauline title Christ Jesus do not occur. The first is, as we noted, Israel's peculiar title and the latter the evangelistic title of the present age of gospel. To none of the seven churches does Christ reveal himself by any of his proper names, the great name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, previously used by Paul in his prophetic doxology, finds its significance in the Old Testament use. It was applied to Nebuchadnezzar by Daniel and Ezekiel and to Artaxerxes, one of his successors. Its significance comes from the Babylonian king's worldwide sovereignty and the place Christ takes as the successor of the world powers in the vision of the stone smiting the image, representing the long term of the reign of the world empires of which Nebuchadnezzar was first and head. It only refers to Christ's earthly kingship, however. The peculiar title of Christ in the Apocalypse is given by himself alone. I am the Alpha and Omega, saith the Lord God, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. With this he opens the revelation. And with the same he closes the last of the works of sin and opens the new Jerusalem. The alphabetical letters identified Christ as the Word. The first and last alphabetical letters show he is the complete Word or manifestation and message of God. It also includes Christ as the Creator and the Jehovah of the Old Testament. It is not the name of Christ in the eternal future, however, nor in the eternal past. The title is the designation of Christ in his work from the beginning of creation to the end of time. The name applied to Christ more often than all others together in Revelation is the Lamb. This is, however, a different form of the word from that used elsewhere. It is the diminutive meaning the little lamb, the same word in its diminutive form is used by Christ in his word to Peter, feed my little lambs. It represents Christ in his personal character and expresses the great mission of Christ both in its Godward and manward aspects. It expresses first the 
perfect submission of Christ in trustful yielding up of all in whole and final consecration to the will of God as a perfect sacrifice. It represents Christ as God's substitute for man upon the altar of justice. It expresses the victory of redemption. It is as the Lamb that Christ is praised by the heavenly host in the opening of the apocalypse and as the lamb christ obtains the right and power to open and administer the sealed book of the future it is the wrath of the lamb which is most feared by the impenitent world on the edge of judgment and in the same title he is praised by the innumerable throng of the saved by this name he is appealed to for victory by the angels in war in heaven against satan and by it they overcome it is by this name he is known when he comes in judgment and as the lamb he meets satan and overcomes him in this name he is united to the church forever as his bride and she is ever known as the bride the lamb's wife it is as the lamb that he reigns in the new jerusalem and the last we see of the glory of the city of god and of its god and his christ is as the throne of god and of the lamb here then is the great title of christ the little lamb it is the opposite of man's ideals man chooses ferocious beasts or birds such as the lion bear eagle or dragon for his standards god's little lamb overcomes and destroys them all man chooses boldness and courage as his favorite virtues god opposes with meekness and weakness and wins the victory there are to most and perhaps all scriptural predictions three interpretations first the spiritual second the figurative and third the literal so in the first prediction the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head this is true spiritually of every believer in the sense of christ's victory for him and in him but it refers to the redemptive work of christ in which the serpent's head was bruised the third reference is to the final overthrow of satan personally the prophecy of enoch was the lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints it is true at all times that christ comes in vengeance on evildoers it has direct reference to the flood also the further interpretation is the great one as jude tells us which will be at the end the seventy-second psalm is another illustration of this principle it describes a state of christian experience it was predicted directly of solomon by his father david but there was the final fulfillment in the reign of christ so in these three senses the apocalypse may be interpreted it has furnished constant edification to the people of god in all ages by its spiritual meaning whether the predictive meaning was understood or not there has been also a figurative fulfillment all along the course of history this christ declared by the opening declaration the revelation of jesus christ which god gave him to shew unto his servants even the things which must shortly come to pass 
that Christ should apprise his servants of what was coming is in accord with all the past. Always have the people of God been informed as to the future from the first to the present. To prove that this is a meaning of the apocalypse, one need only take such a history as that of Gibbon, covering the same period, the work of an unbeliever, yet reciting sometimes in almost the same terms the events predicted by the apocalypse. The revelation has been a lamp in a dark place to the church all these centuries. The diligent student may still make out the shadows of coming events by the aid of this great prophecy. But the predictions of Scripture, and especially the Apocalypse, have a future and a greater fulfillment. The historical and the spiritual fulfillments do not exhaust the language nor the figures. For example, the opening of the sixth seal, where the world of sinners call upon the rocks and mountains to fall on them and hide them, from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb was fulfilled historically in the overwhelming convulsions of the downfall of the roman empire but any reader looking at these sublime words and being told that this was the fulfillment of them would ask is that all they mean the fact that many old testament scriptures use the same kind of language in predicting the fall of lands like babylon is not opposed to the view here held for all these have as in intimated a connection with the day of the lord scripture intimates that things of the past and of the earth are shadows of things above and of the future this idea is embodied in such common sayings as history repeats itself and coming events cast the shadows before in a higher sense than these sayings mean the idea is correct the epistle to the hebrews speaks of the ordinances of the mosaic economy being shadows of the heavenly things copies of the things in the heavens milton says what if earth be but the shadow of heaven and things therein each to the other like more than on earth is thought the law and its ordinances were shadows of the spiritual realities which came in christ by this historical fulfillment we may read the greater one and it is for this reason the two are given as well as for the edification of contemporaneous believers this future fulfillment of the apocalypse is the history of the day of god a consideration of the christ of the future and his work demands a review of the events of the day of the lord the events of the age to come are many the record is crowded with the outline of it great political systems rise and fall and many peoples are gathered into world-wide combinations strange events happen among them battles are fought and cities are overthrown all show that time is occupied by its events nor is the work of that day all judgment although it is the day of judgment there are to be the 
offers of mercy and calls to repentance and a worldwide proclamation of the gospel there also will be events affecting the church and blessed raptures and glories for the believers and a long age of universal peace and happiness for man the sequence of events is the great matter of difficulty and of diversity among students of the word we have before us a mass of glittering mountain peaks and we are looking at the whole from a distance and their relative position and relationship is not easily perceived they are presented here in the consecutive order of the apocalypse on the conviction that whatever other fulfillments that greatest of prophecies has it is a history of the day of god we shall follow then its order and add other scriptures as they seem to fit and systematic record the church israel and the world will each be found to have a place in these events as in the previous ages the mistake made commonly is in shutting up each feature of the day of the lord in a single event as for example but one appearing of christ and one rapture of the saints a single resurrection and but one judgment the same mistake as was made by the jews in regard to the coming of christ this conception must be gotten rid of if the predictions are to be understood at all from stephan's das ende does not the day of the lord since scripture knows only one great day comprehend both the parousia and the last universal judgments does not even the same scripture say a day with the lord is as a thousand years yea does not john call the last time itself the last hour what hinders us to believe that the day of the lord begins with the parousia and ends with the universal judgment we shall look for not one or two appearances of christ or one or two resurrections but a single judgment but a succession of each of these christ coming often during this age of the supernatural so also several described resurrections and judgments the whole is one coming of christ one long judgment day one long resurrection day all these are normal events of the age we quote from lang the resurrection of the dead is exhibited as a vital process working from within outwards through an entire eon from the first glorious blossoms of the resurrection to the last general resurrection the judgment is set forth as a distinct series of judgments reaching from the war judgment at the return of christ through the peace judgment of the thousand years to the judgment of damnation to the close of those years the entire eon is to be conceived of as an eon of separation and eliminations in an ethical and a cosmical sense separations and eliminations which are such as are necessary to make manifest and to complete the ideal regulations of life the apocalypse opens the future by the figure of the gradual opening and slowly unrolling of a sealed book or scroll the state of things accompanying this is the same as described by 
Christ in the Ovalet Discourse, which is a history of our gospel age, which ends in a sudden inburst of the day of the Lord. The believer is to be apprised by premonitory signs, so as to not to be taken unawares. Among these are a general worldwide proclamation of the gospel, an apostasy, unbelief in the coming of the Lord, probably a persecution of the saints, national movements among the jews and calamities affecting the turkish abomination and the papacy a special call of some kind is indicated by the midnight cry in the parable of the ten virgins upon the world the day of the lord is to come as a thief as a snare as lightning there are to be at their usual vocations the first intimation the world will have will be the enshrouding of the whole earth in a pall of impenetrable darkness this is the common idea of the last day or the end of the world as this great event is commonly termed and in a sense correctly in attempting to describe the conditions of that time we can only use the language of scripture i will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the day of the lord come that great and notable day christ himself mentioned these phenomena among the accompaniments of the end clouds and darkness are everywhere associated in the old testament predictions with the coming of the day of god the state of things on earth at this time is thus described by christ there shall be signs and sun and moon and stars and upon the earth distress of nations in perplexity for the roaring of the sea and the billows men feigning for fear and for expectation of the things which are coming on the world for the powers of the heavens shall be shaken there is to be in the midst of the wonders in earth and air and sky a special sign which will show the world it is the presence of the day of god but immediately after the tribulation of those days the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven luther refers to this passage as follows as something strikingly awful shall forewarn that the world will come to an end and that the last day is even at the door alford writes upon this passage such prophecies are to be understood literally and indeed without such understanding would lose their true and significance the physical signs will happen as to the sign of the son of man in heaven he writes this is manifestly some sign in the heavens by which all shall know that the son of man is at hand on the whole i think no sign completely answers the conditions but that of the cross and accordingly we find the fathers mostly thus explaining the passage the effect of this definite announcement of the imminent advent of christ himself in person is given us in the following extract from the vision of john the kings of the earth and the princes and the chief 
captains and the rich and the strong and every bondman and freeman hid themselves in caves and in the rocks of the mountains and they say to the mountains and to the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath is come and who is able to stand the appearing of christ himself is the great event of the day of the lord although there are many events connected with the age called the day of the lord yet so great is this event that it is often spoken of in scripture as the beginning and end of all nearly every body of believers has given it a place in their expressions of belief whatever difference exists as to times or order of events there is practical unanimity that christ will come and call the world to judgment it was the hope of the apostolic and paristic churches and has been as dr david brown says the pole star of the church in two great facts all evangelical believers agree as to the coming of christ it is personal and possible personal as to its nature and always possible as to its occurrence some expressions from learned and devout writers as to the importance of this event are here given dr albert barnes wrote it may be added with great force whether christians now have any such expectation of the appearing of the lord jesus or whether they have not fallen into the dangerous era of the prevailing unbelief so that the expectation of his coming is allowed to exert almost no influence on the soul in the passage before us paul says that it was one of the distinct characteristics of the christian that he looked for the coming of the saviour from heaven let us look for the coming of the lord all that we hope for depends in his appearing our days of triumph and our fullness of joy are to be when he shall return the westminster confession contains this paragraph as christ would have us to be certain that there shall be a day of judgment both to deter all men from sin and for the consolation of the godly so will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the lord will come and may be ever prepared to say come lord jesus come quickly bishop ryle wrote i believe that the second coming of our lord jesus christ will be a real literal personal bodily coming that as he went away in the clouds of heaven with his body before the eyes of men so in like manner will he return spurgeon said o christian do you know that your lord is coming in such an hour as ye think not the man who has hung on the calvary will descend in glory the head that was crowned with thorns will shine with a diadem of brilliant stars matthew henry thus comments to watch implies not only to believe that our lord will come but to desire that he would come to be often thinking of his coming and always looking for it as soon and near and the time of it is uncertain our looking at 
Christ's second coming as at a distance is the cause of all those irregularities that render the thought of it terrible. Thomas Chalmers wrote, Let us await the coming of our Lord. I desire to cherish a more habitual and practical faith than heretofore in that coming which even the first Christians were called to hope for with all earnestness even though many centuries were to elapse ere the hope could be realized rev george Mueller, founder of the orphan houses bristol england and author of the life of christ writes the effect of it produced upon me was this from my inmost soul i was stirred up to feel for perishing sinners and for the slumbering world around me living the wicked one and considered ought i not do what i can to win souls for the lord jesus while he tarries and to rouse a slumbering church calvin wrote not to hesitate ardently desiring the day of christ's coming as of all events the most auspicious luther said i ardently hope that amidst the internal dissensions of earth jesus christ will hasten the day of his coming richard baxter said the thoughts of the coming of the lord are of almost sweet and joyful to me so that if i were but sure that i should live to see it and that the trumpet should sound and the dead should arise and the lord appear before the period of my age it would be the joyfulest tidings to me in the world. The coming of Christ is sometimes spoken of as the descent of the Holy Spirit, the destruction of Jerusalem, the spiritual coming to the believer, death, chastisement, and special judgments. Some of these are so turned in Scripture as the spiritual coming and chastisement and judgments, others as death are not and others as the first two were passed when the revelation was written none of these fully satisfy in any measure the statements of scriptures such as are quoted herein one feature of this great event must be kept in view as stated by jameson fawcett and brown christ's second coming is not a mere point of time but a period beginning with the resurrection of the just and ending with the general judgment in this latter advent there are many appearings of christ he appears again and again during the progress of that long day he appears for his people and with them he appears to his people alone and to the assembled world he appears as a single dazzling sinner of ineffable lot and again among his people arrayed like them riding forward with them to victory so we must be prepared to see all through the day of god one great figure frequently appearing upon the scene in his entrance upon the work of the day of the lord christ adopts a wholly different appearance attitude and method of procedure the christ of the revelation is a very different manifestation from the christ of the gospels or epistles in the gospels he is the lowly traveller toiling teaching until his strength is gone in the epistles he is invisible the world knows him only on evidence he is sitting at god's right hand 
in expectancy and by his church beseeching them to be reconciled to god he is patiently bearing man's neglect and profanity his people are persecuted and killed and he makes no sign of displeasure or even knowledge they cry to him and he waits long before avenging their wrongs his truth is denied and vilified and he is silent the world takes possession of the fairest portions of earth and turns them into scenes of sin and cruelty and he appears to see it not in the apocalypse all is changed christ is no longer sitting but in every form of activity he is the christ of energy he is coming in, in clouds riding on horseback leading armies smiting down evils taking vengeance upon all foes calling the dead to life summoning the world to judgment and dealing out justice with a high hand he is seen leading his people in triumph openly rewarding them and crowning them with glory end of chapter six part one recording by susan lamar